0: kids kindergarten through fifth grade you can make your way to the back your teachers are back there waiting for you and we'll take you to your classrooms this morning take your copy of god's word and turn with me to genesis chapter 3 genesis chapter 3 we're going to read verses 17 18 and 19 this morning if you don't have a copy of god's word larry has some in the back and would happily bring you one um, looks like we've we've gone to the paperback copies if you don't have a copy of God's word too the ones that Larry has in his hands right now are are for you um, if you don't have something to look at regularly to spend time communing with God through his word please take one of those take one of those home and uh, that's our gift to you to you this morning Genesis 3 beginning in verse 17 i will read 18 and 19 as well. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mark alluded to it just a moment ago, but over the last couple of weeks, we've explored God's word to the serpent and to the woman, uh, especially related to um, the sin that entered the world through the deception that the serpent brought to Eve. Uh, who succumbed to it, and then the willful rebellion of of Adam. And you'll remember over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've talked about God's addressing uh, the the parties who are most responsible, starting with the least to the most responsible. So God begins in verse 14 of chapter 3, addressing the serpent. uh, And then in verse 16, which we explored last week, he addresses the woman. And now, this morning, verses 17, 18, and 19, he addresses addresses the man. The man bears the most responsibility for the entrance of sin into the world for a couple of reasons. Paul gives us a couple of these in Romans chapter 5. But we can see clearly in Genesis chapter 2, if we go back a page or two in your Bible, we can see clearly that God gave Adam his word directly, beginning in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, 16 and 17, God gives his word to Adam directly. Uh, and so Adam is responsible, or the responsibility falls squarely on his shoulders for the disruption of God's created order. Adam is the one who is most responsible. Again, I alluded to Paul just a moment ago. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam Paul doesn't say that the word that sin came into the world through the the woman and he doesn't say that sin came into the world through Eve. Adam bore the responsibility for the entrance of sin in the world and in a marriage relationship which we see between Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, especially at the end, Uh, The relationship that Adam and Eve shared, a husband covenants with his wife to love, to lead, and to protect his his wife and provide for. Adam fails in chapter 3, when we look at the first seven verses, he fails to lead his wife out of sin when the serpent deceived her. Adam, who was present, should have stepped up and in and corrected the errors in Eve's understanding of God's word. Adam should have given an Eve, Eve a clearer picture of God's words in chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen, and he should have protected Eve from the serpent's deception. But he lets the serpent speak out of turn, and he should have stepped in and informed the serpent that the serpent was designed to be subject to the man and the woman, and not the other way around, and therefore had no. Place in questioning God's words from chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. But rather than doing so, Adam hangs Eve out to dry. Adam should have provided a way for Eve to escape the onslaught of the serpent's counterclaims to God's word. In short, Adam had the ability to put an end to the whole interaction, but instead of putting an end to the whole interaction, He willfully rebels against God's word and willingly participates in the upsetting of God's created order. So here's what it boils down to, and this is where we've come so far. When we get to chapter 3, verse 17, we have to ask ourselves, did Adam trust God's word? Did Adam trust God's word? And so far, we've seen very clearly the answer is no. We can answer no, because we see Adam's interaction as he watched the serpent deceive his wife and his rebellion that caused him to eat the fruit when his wife handed it to him. When you open up your phone this week and look at the weather app, hopefully you don't see one of these, but if you do see a winter weather warning, please, Lord, no. There's son, sort of, yeah, look at that. If you see a winter weather warning, you get ready for what could be a day or two of not going anywhere. You don't just blow it off and say, maybe it won't happen. Can I really trust the National Weather Service anyway? The creator God commanded Adam to work and to keep the garden. To eat of any tree other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam ate of that tree, he would die. That's what God tells him. Now, God isn't a weatherman. I hope that's not offensive. God isn't a weatherman. He's not in the business of making predictions that may or may not come true. God is God, and when he says, if you do this thing, you will die, you probably want to listen. But Adam treats God and his words like a suggestion. Maybe there's a 60-40 chance that I'll die if I eat of this, and that I can count on what God says. That is not trust. And so we see very clearly that God is not trusted by Adam. Adam does not trust what God tells him in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And so here we are in chapter 3, verse 17. Adam failed to trust God's word given to him, and the resulting the result is sin. And we see the resulting punishment for the sin of Adam found here in our text. One thing I want you to see before we dive in, though, I want to reiterate something I stated last week. When we look at this text in particular, we see God talk about the effect of sin or the curse of sin on particular areas. But I think God addresses these areas, like we saw last week in the woman I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He addresses childbearing, childrearing, and he addresses marriage. But then, when he gets to Adam here in our text this morning, he talks about his work and ultimately death. But I want to reiterate the fact that what we see here is something that's all-encompassing. It's not something that's small or compartmentalized, but, but has an effect on everything in, in creation. What affects the woman also affects the man. What affects the man also affects the woman. What affects the ground also affects man and woman. These aren't neat little compartments. But what God says in verse 16 to the woman and in verses 17 to 19 for the man represent the far-reaching effects of sin. The effects of sin on the woman also affect the man and vice versa. Because of their relationship here is a one flesh union. And so we'll focus on that a little bit this morning as we unpack these three verses. But let's consider God's word to Adam and how it affects him. How the curse of sin affects Adam here in these three verses. I think it's pretty clear the first half of verse 17, we see God sort of recounting what, what took place when sin entered the world. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now we get into the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I'm emphasizing the word you because this is the first time we have so many yous strung together. It's the first time that we see the repercussions so clearly the results of sin. So what we see primarily addressed here in the second half of 17, 18, and the beginning of 19 is Adam's work. Adam's work. Now, don't get me wrong, when we see work here as being, uh, it's not a result of the curse, but rather it is affected by the the, the, the curse. And so... Adam's charge in 2.15 is to, if you flip back to that, the the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So work is not part of the curse of sin. If you're thinking that work is evil, it's not. (laughs) Rather, after Genesis 3, work bears the mark of sin. And so we're designed to work. We are designed to work as people who are made in God's image, we're designed to work. But now our work bears the mark of sin. But work is and was part of God's perfect plan for mankind. So the actual question we need to ask when we look at what God says to Adam here in 17, 18, and 19 is, why is work so hard? Why is work so difficult? And again, the answer is because of the effects of sin, but we'll spend a little bit more time reflecting on that. And when we look at the second half of 17, cursed is the ground because of it, and pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. And then verse 18, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. This is a principle-based conversation. It means that any attempt to be productive in this world, in a fallen world, will encounter resistance. Any attempt that we make to be productive will encounter resistance. Ken Hughes says it like this. Painful toil will assault every soul who attempts to produce in this world. So every time we, we attempt to do something, to be productive, we will encounter some type of resistance. And this won't change. God says, all the days of your life, right at the end of verse 17, in pain you shall eat of it, all the days of your life. Even on your best, most productive days, you will still encounter resistance. This text also isn't just just for farmers. It does talk about the ground a lot, but again, it's a principle-based conversation. Thorns and thistles help us understand how Adam's task, in particular, is made more difficult. But again, we must see the principle in play. So you have to ask yourself, what do you work with? What do you work with? Adam worked with the ground. What do you work with? It doesn't matter what. It's going to be prickly, and it's going to fight back. And bringing it back into order will be difficult. It'll be tough. Maybe it's balancing a checkbook, maybe it's streamlining a process, maybe it's teaching children, maybe it's putting shingles on a house or helping others overcome an addiction. Whatever it is that you set out to do and set out to produce will be and have a sense of resistance. It won't be easy. There will be a thorn and a thistle and you will experience pain in it. Let me give you a practical thing that I thought about this week, especially as it relates to our climate here in North Dakota. We go for extended periods of time without seeing the sun, and that could be difficult. It's a challenge for some of you, and I know that it's a challenge, I have to freely admit, for me. My body and brain just don't respond well when we go for weeks and weeks on end without seeing the sun. Writing a sermon or whatever it is that I need to do throughout the course of my week requires focus and mental energy. But again, when we go for a few weeks in the winter without seeing the sun, it gets really tough to put my brain in gear. Creation is under a curse. And this may be true for you wherever you find yourself working throughout the the week. Creation is under a curse, constant cloud cover are the thorns and thistles that cause resistance, one of the ways, that cause resistance in my own work possibly yours. So what I want to do right now is unpack some implications of the resistance. We can say, yes, we see this in the text, thorns and thistles, uh, the ground is under a curse, and therefore whatever we set out to do as people, whatever we set out to produce, whatever we set out to bring about is going to encounter resistance. Then Uh, We need to explore how is it or what might that look like or what might the result be or what might we be tempted to fall into as those who work in a fallen world. I'm going to give you, I think, five things. Five things. We'll say five and maybe it's only four. The first thing is this. Work in a fallen world threatens to rule over us. Work in a fallen world threatens to rule over us. If creation bears a curse and resists our attempts to be productive, then we may be tempted to throw ourselves into our work. The re- this represents a desire we have to control the uncontrollable. You may be really good at your job, the top of your field, or you may really struggle in your field of work. Either way, more time and energy invested by you will not result in an overcoming of the thorns and thistles that are spoken about here in Genesis chapter 3. In our culture, being a workaholic isn't all that uncommon. Many men and women feel the God-given desire to work and be productive, which is good, but mistake that God-given desire to work for being a God themselves. They want to increase their productivity and excel in a way that defies the odds. They want to control the uncontrollable and see a yield from their work that is unprecedented. They don't work to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. If you lost your work, here's a question for you. If you lost your work, would you lose your sense of purpose? If you lost your work, would you lose your sense of purpose? If that's the case, and if you're honest with yourself, and that's the case, your work is ruling over you. Your work has become your God if it's the source of your meaning and your purpose. And this is sort of the irony of the whole thing. When you seek to control the uncontrollable and rule over your work by spending 15 more minutes in the office or another weekend on the road, You're not getting closer to a deeper level of productivity. You're not achieving a higher plane of existence or launching yourself into an easier tomorrow. You're simply proving that what you've set to control is actually controlling you. Man, I think we need to hear this warning clearly. Some of you are in serious jeopardy of or already are making work your God and you hope in this life is tied up in your minute-to-minute vocational success. You aren't reducing the pain, you're heaping it on. Honestly assess, if you lost your work, would you lose your sense of purpose and meaning? That brings us to the next implication, which isn't all that different, but second, work in a fallen world threatens to define us. This is the purpose and meaning question we asked. When we meet someone for the first time in our culture, we typically ask them what they do. What do you do for a living? Where do you work? In America, you are what you produce. In a fallen world, we latch on to what we can to find our identity. To provide meaning and purpose for us. But only God can ultimately grant us the proper Identity in him through Jesus Christ. So, work in a fallen world threatens to define us. Third thing I would say is this. This is the other side of the coin. Work in a fallen world threatens to leave us resigned. You may think, if my work is going to be met with resistance, why try at all? Why try at all? We resign ourselves and become las- lackadaisical in our work. It's just a grind, we call it, back at the grind. We just think of it in a way to get money or to do what we, in order to do with the things that we really want to do. But we'd rather be hitting golf balls off a yacht in the ocean somewhere. That's not a reality for me, but maybe it is for you. When I'm saying resigned, but the reality is that it's just a nice way of saying Lazy. The, common, the command to subdue the earth and exercise dominion remains intact for us. Your work doesn't have to define you or rule over you, but you, you can still work hard and reject laziness. The Bible refers a lazy person as a sluggard regularly, especially in the book of Proverbs, if you read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs fifteen nineteen says, one of many references to the sluggard, says the way of the, but I think incredibly relevant to this text this morning, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The hedge of thorns is what grows up in an unchecked, unworked earth that produces thorns and thistles. But a level highway is the result of hard work, despite the resistance that is present in creation. Just because work is subject to the effects of sin doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard and heartily. So you'll note a tension here. You'll note a pretty clear tension here. Hard work doesn't equal all consuming work. Knowing limits doesn't mean laziness. And you need to know yourself and what you tend towards. Fourth thing is this. Work in a fallen world threatens to leave us calloused. Threatens to leave us calloused. When we encounter resistance in our work, we may forget to love our neighbor. Work has a way of putting us on edge, especially when there's a level of resistance that's high. And so we may plow through a co-worker on our way to getting things done. Or we may treat others poorly, disrespect them yell at them, slander them, or complain about them. We may use our the difficulty of our work as an excuse for representing Christ well in our workplace. That may look like ignoring or complaining about the paperwork HR needs us to fill out. It may look like impatience or unreasonable expectations. It may look like being the guy or gal that no one wants to bump into the hallway because they know that you're taking time bomb. Again, the threat is that because work is hard and subject to sin, we become calloused to those interactions. We're more likely to inflict wounds than to bind them up. And we may not even give it a second thought. Fifth thing is this. Work in a fallen world threatens our, our families. Now we can see clearly that any one of these things I mentioned has adverse effects on our home life. If your work rules over you, you will serve work above your spouse and children. Your cell phone takes precedence at mealtime. Meetings will take precedence over tucking your kids to bed. Catching up will make you late for date night. If your work defines you, you will find difficulty in caring about or fulfilling your role in the home. If your work is unimportant and you're lazy, you will probably fall down as a provider. If your work leaves you calloused, you will find yourself failing to care for the hearts of your spouse and your children. Men, specifically, because this this text is directed at Adam, Adam, I'm going to suggest that you are doing one of these five things that I mentioned, if not more than one. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty substantial start. But if you're doing one of these things, which I'm going to suggest you probably are, you're probably self-justifying as well. You've convinced yourself that the threat of losing your job is high, so you pour in extra hours, but you're just proving that your job is the thing that you can't lose. You've convinced yourself that your work is meaningless. And so you've stopped trying. And you're just failing to live in God's design for you, which is to have dominion over everything, all of creation, and to subdue the earth. Adam failed as a leader and as a protector and as a provider. We see that clearly. Your defunct understanding of work may leave you in the same spot as Adam. You're not leading your family because you're at the office. You're not protecting your family because the negative way that you started talking to your coworkers is bleeding into the home. You're not providing because you're lazy and bounce from job to job or you're so invested in your work that you haven't bothered to check in with your wife and kids emotionally and spiritually in a couple of years. When we encounter resistance in our work, we will feel the pull of these things. And we will have to fight the internal and the external threats to ourselves and to others. There's one more thing here in this text that I want to explore, not related to work, but related to the conditions around our work. I think it gets to the heart of Adam's sin and why God curses the ground, making Adam's task so arduous. So set the work piece aside and think about just the conditions that are brought about as the result of sin. In Genesis chapter 2, when God gives Adam his word, Adam finds himself in the perfect conditions to hear God's word and to live according to it in the Garden of Eden. And this was God's kindness and generosity, giving him the perfect conditions to live according to his word. But Adam still, we see at the beginning of Genesis 3, willfully rebels. And then the conditions get a whole lot worse. Cursed ground, thorns and thistles, an increased difficulty of his work that were introduced as a result of his sin. And these conditions made trusting God radically difficult. So I asked that question at the outset. Did Adam trust God? Did he trust his word? And the answer is no, he didn't. But now, now these conditions, cursed ground, thorns and thistles, resistance in work, now trusting God is radically difficult. Sin entered the world through the sin of Adam. That sin transmitted to us. We are born into the sin of Adam that we clearly and actively choose. But that sin meant that all of creation would be subject to sin. So God curses the ground. Romans eight twenty and 21, Paul writes... For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Lots of theology there. But the curse that God speaks was not the choice of the ground. The ground didn't say, yeah, go ahead, bring it on. Let's let's have it. But this is the choice of God. But it because of him who subjected it. We see it is the choice of God as it is given to us in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. God's command to Adam was to have dominion over creation, to subdue it, to work it, to keep it. His task gets a lot harder here because of his sin, and I think that we can even say his task is impossible. Adam needs to pour all his energy into growing plants for food and bread and there is no guarantee that those things will even come about. He doesn't even know that it'll be good enough to sustain himself and his family. Again, Adam was called to lead, protect and provide for his wife. Because of sin, Eve's desire would be contrary to Adam's. See that in verse 16. Because of sin... Creation wouldn't just back down. Protecting his family would be difficult. It would be harder. It would be near impossible. Creation is now resisting. and may even look like a lion trying to tear off your head or something internal. How do you protect against things like disease and cancer? Because of sin, Providing would be frustrating and tiresome. The ground wouldn't just give up the plants that he needed to eat and that he needed to give to his family. Thorns and thistles would get in the way. And so I want you to see that the curse of sin wasn't just work gets a bit harder, having kids gets a bit harder, and marriage gets a little bit harder. It's much more pervasive In a fallen world, sin seeps into every crevice of creation. The world around us is saturated in sin. Death touches everything. Our own hearts are soaked in sin as a result of the sin of our first parents that we willfully participate in. This theme is picked up throughout Scripture. King David Scripture tells us, a man after God's own heart. Israel's greatest king writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The prophet Jeremiah would write, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And again, Paul writes, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Look at that verse. Is it on the screen? Cool. Look at that verse. The Bible frequently discusses an idea that we would refer to as union. As you read the letters of the New Testament, you will find two words often paired together that are really important. And anytime you see those two words, you should circle them, underline them, highlight them, whatever you want to do. The two words are this, in Christ. In Christ. This little phrase is dramatically important. It points to the union that we have with Christ as Christians. If you are a Christian... You are joined with Christ. That's what union is. You are joined with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6:17. Paul says, "But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him." The benefits that are his, are Jesus's, now belong to you. Benefits like adoption, benefits like freedom, benefits like resurrection, As Christians, we may think that we're these individual entities floating around in the world, doing our own thing, and then God is like, hey, maybe I should check in on them. Maybe I should see what's going on with them. That's not it. Rather, the New Testament paints a picture for us. We are joined with Christ As Christians, we are joined with Christ and everything that is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. If you are a Christian and you ever wonder what God thinks about you, consider what he says about Jesus beginning with, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's what God thinks about you if you're in Christ. Now, the important thing that we have to see here as a result of our text in Genesis 3 is what is true of you if you are not in Christ? Because the Bible says that you are in Adam if you're not in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the Bible has only two categories for people those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. For those who are in Adam, death is their inheritance, and that inheritance is given to Adam right here at the end of Genesis 3.19. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But for those who are in Christ, our inheritance is eternal life. So in conclusion this morning, that's what I want to flesh out. I want to explore that for a moment. I want you to see how eternal life is or becomes our inheritance if we are in Christ. The ultimate result of Adam and Eve's sin was death. God makes this clear in Genesis 2.17. This is not a surprise. It's not a surprise. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. God says they eat of it. And then we get the curse of sin and ultimately death here in verse 19. Now, you'll remember back in Genesis chapter 2, we saw Adam was uniquely suited to work the ground. He was uniquely suited to work the ground because God formed him out of it. Out of the dust of the ground, God forms him. The name Adam, actually, is that, that's what it means, or it's a play on words. Adama. So Adam shared something in common with the ground. This is God's design. But through the introduction of sin into the world, death came about, which means that Adam wouldn't have dominion over it. It would ultimately take him back that which Adam was designed to have mastery over the ground would ultimately have mastery over him. And it would seem like the ground would have the last laugh. I want you to see this clearly because this is really important. This is really important. The, the ground here from Adam, from from the ground he comes, and to the ground he returns. From the dust he is taken until the, to the dust he shall return. I want you to see this clearly, because God doesn't say the word you'll die. He's much more poetic about it. He gives us a clear picture. Even like when we die and we go into the ground and we decompose and we're broken down, we become the dust again. God picks that language intentionally. He's not just using it to give us a flourish here at the end. For those who are in Adam, the ground does does have the last laugh. It would seem like the ground would get the last laugh here. But remember Paul's words that we just read a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that which what Adam was designed to have mastery over would ultimately have mastery over him. So what hope was there for Adam? And what hope was there for Eve? And what hope is there for us? We see it in the good news first presented in verse 15. The offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, And you shall bruise his heel. The one that would come and crush the head of the serpent is Jesus Christ. And he would come into a world where the conditions were completely opposed to trusting his father and obeying him. And yet he would trust his father and obey him perfectly. He would become the new and better Adam. The one who wouldn't succumb to the temptations of Satan. And the things that the world threw his way. He would perfectly do all that God required of him. Where Adam fell down, Jesus, Jesus Christ, did perfectly all that God required of him. Jesus would be wrongfully accused, however, and he would be murdered. But when he went into the ground, something incredible would happen. When he went into the ground in the dust that took every man and woman before him, would not have mastery over him. The ground that took so much, and even in the work that Adam would exert, even all the energy and effort that he would put forth, and would give back so little, and it would ultimately take him. The ground that would take loved ones and hold them. The ground that took so much and gave so little back. The ground to which each of us will go. Jesus walked out of it. Jesus walked out of the grave. And what hope was there for Adam and Eve? And what hope is there for us? The answer is Jesus walked out of the grave. The importance of the physical nature of the resurrection is paramount for us as Christians. We must believe wholeheartedly that Jesus walked out of the grave, or there is no hope for us, because from the dust we will we have come, and for the dust We will return. Where Adam failed to have mastery over the ground, Jesus succeeded. Adam was meant to be the Lord of creation, but he failed when he ate the fruit that his wife handed him. And creation would fight him tooth and nail, resisting his God-given work. But Jesus is the Lord of creation. Because there is not one corner of all of creation that Jesus doesn't have Perfect mastery over. All things are now in subjection, under his feet. What does that mean for us? It means trust Jesus. Your work is hard. Trust Jesus. Your marriage is hard. Trust Jesus. Parenting is hard. Trust Jesus. Jesus. The thought of death is hard. Trust Jesus. Because if you trust Jesus, you will be found in Christ. And the ground that threatens your, you and your work and in death will ultimately have no claim on you. If you're an Adam, the ground will have mastery over you. An eternal separation from God is your destiny. But if you are In Christ, you will stand up and you will walk out of the grave. So this morning, recognize that you are in fact sinful. And that sin has seeped into your heart through the act of your first parents, Adam and Eve, and that you have willingly chased after sin. You've sought satisfaction in your work. You've failed to love your neighbor in your work. Men, you've failed to love your wives. Women, you've failed to respect your husbands. Kids, you've failed to honor your parents. You've tried to justify your neglect of God's word. You've tried to justify your willful rebellion against God's word. And trust Jesus. Because of sin, you are in Adam. But when you trust Jesus, your sin goes to him at the cross. And all of his benefits come to you as you are joined with Jesus Christ that includes resurrection. These words are not yours. These are words are no longer yours. Out of the out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will go back into the ground, but you will come out. In Christ, the ground that had a claim on Adam has no claim on you. This is how eternal life will become our inheritance through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is ours now. It is my hope that we would consider that truth as we work this week in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, and in all that we do. Let's pray.